Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Coming up later in today's feature report, our WFHB Environmental Affairs Correspondent, Nathaniel Weinsapple, will continue his report on climate change in Indiana with Episode 2, which will discuss, Is Climate Change Really Occurring? And now for your environmental reports. A plan to construct in northwest Indiana, one of the largest commercial solar energy systems in the world, is likely to remain at least partially unrealized for the near future. The Indiana Court of Appeals affirmed the August 24, 2021, Pulaski Superior Court ruling that halted the portion of the Mammoth Solar Project that aims to deploy solar panels across 4,511 acres of Pulaski County farmland. In a 3-0 decision, the appellate court said Special Judge Kim Hall concluded Mammoth Solar failed to submit a complete application for zoning approval, and the Pulaski County Board of Zoning Appeals erred by nevertheless consenting to the Mammoth Solar Deployment Plan. Likewise, Pyle said it's undisputed that the Mammoth Solar application did not contain all the required information, including a site layout plan, a fire protection plan, a topographic map, a communication study, utility certification, and evidence of compliance with storm drainage, erosion, and sediment control regulations. Altogether, the 1.5 billion mammoth solar farm is projected to cover some 13,000 acres in two counties and generate 1.3 gigawatts of electricity or enough to power hundreds of thousands of homes. The project is being built in three phases with the 475 million phase first, producing 400 megawatts of clean energy projected to become operational by mid-2023. It is obvious the operational date will be delayed. The fossil fuel industry is making a big effort to defeat the project. Perhaps they view a 20-foot rise in ocean levels as being better than a no-carbon route to stop climate change. Would having millions of acres covered with water be preferable to a few thousand acres of panels? When ranked on air, water, and pollution, Louisiana is the worst in the U.S. Indiana is third worst. Recently, Louisiana activists successfully battled to block an enormous plastic plant in a corridor so dense with industrial refineries that it is known as Cancer Alley. The ruling canceled the company's air permits. 
In a sharply worded opinion, Judge Trudy White of Louisiana's 19th Judicial District in Baton Rouge noted that the residents in the tiny town of Welcome, where the $9.4 billion petrochemical plant would have been built, are descendants of enslaved Africans. Quote, the blood, sweat, and tears of their ancestors is tied to the land, end quote, Judge White wrote. Their ancestors worked the land with the hope and dream of passing down productive agricultural untainted land along the Mississippi to their families. The company intends to explore all legal options in light of Judge White's ruling as the project continues to pursue successful permitting. The company argued the permits issued by the state were sound and that the project had met state and federal standards. The canceled permits would have allowed the company to emit ethylene oxide, a substance that a 2016 Environmental Protection Agency study concluded could cause cancer even with limited exposure. The facility would also have emitted more than 13.6 million tons per year of greenhouse gases, the equivalent of 3.5 coal-fired power plants. Indiana has a couple of cases of proposed installations where the possibility of dangerous emissions exist. These are a coal-to-diesel plant in Dale and a plastic pyrolysis plant in Ashley. Wildlife biologists in Vermont have discovered a hopeful sign for the state's Indiana bat population. One colony located in Hinesburg appears to be flourishing. In the Green Mountain State and nationwide, bats have been suffering from white-nose syndrome for more than a decade when the disease first appeared and swiftly decimated the populations of several species. Numbers of Indiana bats in the rest of Vermont have been declining and the species is federally listed as endangered. But the summer colony located on conserved land in Heinsburg contains around 700 of the animals, according to data collected this summer by Alyssa Bennett, a small mammals biologist with Vermont's Department of Fish and Wildlife. Inside Climate News reports that with rare bipartisan support, including a phalanx of Republican lawmakers, the U.S. Senate voted 69 to 27 Wednesday in favor of ratifying a key international climate agreement that will significantly curb global warming and, climate advocates say, could serve as a springboard for further emissions reductions. The Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol is a binding agreement to reduce production and use of hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, chemicals used in refrigeration and air conditioning that are also potent, short-lived greenhouse gases. President Joe Biden is expected to soon sign the agreement, something he has called for since his inauguration. The United States would join 137 other countries in an agreement that is projected to prevent substantial additional warming by the end of the century. Quote, I am thrilled to see the U.S. rally to the support of this vital agreement, end quote. John Kerry, the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, said in a written statement. Kerry, as U.S. Secretary of State, helped forge the initial agreement in 2016. Quote, Businesses supported it because it drives American exports. Climate advocates championed it because it will avoid up to half a degree of global warming by the end of the century. And world leaders backed it because it ensures strong international cooperation, end quote, Kerry said. 
The U.S. Chamber of Commerce sent a letter to members of the U.S. Senate earlier in the week urging individual members to vote in support of the treaty and noting that they will consider including votes related to this legislation in our annual How They Voted scorecard. The Senate had to give its advice and consent with a two-thirds majority vote in favor of ratification before President Biden could ratify the agreement. A 2018 report by U.S. Air Conditioning and Refrigeration Industry found that by 2027, the Kigali Amendment would increase U.S. manufacturing jobs by 33,000, increase U.S. exports by $5 billion, and reduce imports by nearly $7 billion. Senator Todd Young voted in favor of the amendment, and Senator Mike Braun voted against it. Nearly all species of sea turtles are considered endangered, according to the World Wildlife Fund. Despite this, people have continued to poach them for food, medicine, and luxury goods in astonishing numbers. The first-ever global assessment of illegal sea turtle hunting to consider multiple countries and regions published in Global Change Biology Wednesday, found that more than 1.1 million turtles have been illegally hunted and killed in the last three decades. Further, more than 44,000 were killed yearly over the last 10 years. Quote, the numbers are really high and almost certainly underrepresented by several orders of magnitude because it's just very hard to assess any type of illegal activity, end quote. Arizona State University assistant research professor and study co-lead author Jesse Cinco said, as The Guardian reported, the study conducted by a team of Arizona State University drew its conclusion from more than 209 peer-reviewed studies, news articles, reports for conservation organizations, and questionnaires. It noted that the killings took place despite protections in 65 countries and 44 out of 58 regional management units for turtles. The most commonly hunted species were green turtles, accounting for 56 percent of the killings, and hawksbill turtles accounting for 39 percent. Green turtles are considered endangered by the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List. The green turtle is considered the most delicious. It's the one that has the meat that pulp people most like to eat, Oceanic Society President Roderick Mast, who was not involved in the study, told The Guardian. Hawksbill turtles, meanwhile, are listed as critically endangered and are primarily hunted for their spangled shells, which are used in tortoise shell jewelry and other decorative items. Millions of imperiled animals are killed each year to buy and sell. This wildlife trade is one of the greatest drivers of the extinction crisis. But at an upcoming international conference, there will be an opportunity to make changes. The conference is a meeting of CITES, C-I-T-E-S. CITES is a multilateral treaty to protect endangered plants and animals from the threats of international trade. It was drafted as a result of a resolution adopted in 1963 at a meeting of members of the International Union for Conservation of Nature. At the upcoming meeting, 184 countries will decide which species need to be saved from the trade. There are some dangerous items on the agenda, including proposals to open trade in elephant ivory and rhino horn that could mean game over for these cherished animals. Many environmental groups will be at 
sites advocating for elephants, rhinos, pangolins, vaquitas, leopards, seahorses, lions, marine turtles, and more. And now for our WFHB Environmental Affairs correspondent, Nathaniel Weinzapfel, a report on climate change in Indiana with Episode 2, Is Climate Change Really Occurring? Episode 2, Is Climate Change Really Occurring? With Professor Ben Kravitz, a climate scientist and assistant professor at Indiana University. This is the second episode of the series, with this one being based around an explanation as to how scientists know climate change is occurring and why there are some people who choose not to believe the science. tornado damage it just looked like a battle zone to historic flooding you couldn't see anything but water nothing but water and raging wildfires got everybody out but it's heartbreaking the u.n's latest most in-depth scientific report on climate change warns the dangers are immediate and growing more acute Climate science and the general knowledge we have about climate change didn't begin with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The history of this scientific field goes back about two centuries ago, when French physicist Joseph Fourier first proposed the idea that Earth's atmosphere acted as a greenhouse and allowed the planet to remain consistently warm. Irish scientist John Tidal would later begin to determine what the composition of the greenhouse was through laboratory experiments in the 1860s. These tests found that compounds related to coal, including carbon dioxide and methane, were excellent sources to absorb energy from the sun. Three decades later, Cervante Arginas discovered that the decreases and increases in global CO2 levels could cool and warm the planet respectively. However, the connection between these discoveries and the growth of the industrial world was not made until the 1930s, when British engineer Guy Stewart Callender realized that average temperatures in the United States had warmed since the Industrial Revolution, and that the Earth as a whole is likely warming. Modern climate science has its origins in the founding of the Mauna Luau Observatory in Hawaii, which began to record atmospheric CO2 levels consistently since 1958. The information gathered at the observatory is depicted in the most famous of climate diagrams, showing CO2 levels rising every year since the record began. This is called the Keeling Curve. The Keeling Curve and the climate models that followed all sought to understand the relationship between the global average temperature and the different impacts humans have on the global climate. Professor Kravitz knows this topic all too well. His 15-year career began by solely focusing on math before becoming interested in atmospheric science and how equations can be used to predict weather and understand climate change. Professor Kravitz explains exactly what his area of focus is when it comes to climate change. I tend to be really interested in physical climate. So basically the way I describe it is when you push the earth system, how does it respond? We call that radiative forcing and climate response. I'm interested in feedbacks. I'm interested in exploring the earth as a system and how we can get 
strange responses when we do things that seem like they wouldn't elicit strange responses and just sort of poking around and trying to figure out how the earth system works. I tend to do a lot of this work with climate models because um, it's a really great laboratory where you can do strange things to the earth system and not actually mess anything up. In fact, climate modeling can be a useful tool to test numerous theories about climate change. Some models allow the foreseens, otherwise known as the impacts, of aerosols to be adjusted, along with the impacts of land use change, surface albedo, which is the reflectivity of the surface of the planet, as well as greenhouse gas emissions. For example, aerosols, when increased, are shown to cool the Earth, while a decrease in surface albedo is shown to warm the planet. Professor Kravitz explains how scientists know that climate change is occurring through the consolidation of numerous historical data points, as well as how we know that humans are definitively causing change. So we have observations that the climate is changing. So we have observations from space, satellites, from the ground, thermometers everywhere. We've had a good thermometer network since the late 1800s. We also have climate models, which are basically our best understanding of how the Earth system's physics work. And we can plug things in. Like if we plug in greenhouse gases, the temperature goes up. And we know why, because we can pick apart the different pieces of the model that are contributing to that. So we can plug in, all right, what have historical emissions done? Let's plug that into the model. The temperature goes up. If you don't have historical greenhouse gas emissions, temperature doesn't go up. So we have a, a bunch of different ways in which we understand climate change. And that's just temperature. We also know that as temperature goes up, the atmosphere can hold more water and it'll change rain patterns. And we can see those in observations and models. We know that as temperature goes up, sea ice will melt. And we can see that in observations and models. So there are many, many different points of evidence all building to the same conclusion. It is this conclusion that led to the United Nations founding the aforementioned Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, otherwise known as the IPCC, in 1989, which hoped to explain the scientific view of climate change to the citizens of the world and detail the potential political and economic impacts. The panel releases assessment reports every six to seven years, with the sixth assessment report being released this previous February. The creation of the IPCC inspired many governments worldwide to act. First, the Kyoto Protocol was established and hoped to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 5.2% by 2008. However, the United States pulled out of this agreement. Once again, in 2015, the world agreed to the Paris Climate Agreement, but the United States left the agreement and only just joined again with the new presidential administration. While this may be the push and pull of politics, time is running out. According to the 2019 Climate Action Summit, the temperature of, quote, 1.5 degrees Celsius is the socially, economically, politically, and scientifically safe limit to global warming by the end of this century. And to achieve this, the world needs to work to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, unquote. It seems that the world may be running out of time. With the aforementioned almost two centuries of supporting data, 
an overwhelming endorsement by the scientific community and the already visible effects of climate change, why are there still so many people who are unwilling to act? Professor Kravitz explains why people may choose to ignore the science. You'd have to ask them. My personal perspective is that when I see all of this evidence, I understand that it's all pointing toward the same conclusion. There are other people who either cannot or choose not to do that. And I'm sure they have a good reason for it, but that's inconsistent with what the science says. This extends even to our state of Indiana. The state government has taken stances that effectively harms the efforts of environmentalists to stop pollution and hopefully curb climate change. For example, last summer, Governor Eric Holcomb signed House Bill 1191 into law which removed the powers of local governments to enact energy regulations and prevent fossil fuel usage. Even individual policymakers have made comments that seemingly dispel the seriousness of the issue. Indiana's Republican Senator Todd Young once denied the consensus on climate change when he was a representative for the 9th District, stating, uh, we're often told there is a consensus among scientists, and uh, I come to discover, as the number of scientists I talk to and the num- number of things I read, that's uh, not necessarily the case. Despite the opinion of Senator Young, there is a consensus on climate change. When asked whether most climate skeptics are simply uninformed or purposely nefarious, Professor Kravitz had this to say. In my experience, I don't think either one is the case. So I I see very few people out there who are just straight up lying. Like they look at the evidence and say, I'm going to lie about it. For people who are steadfast climate contrarians, giving them more information doesn't help because they will reject the new information because it conflicts with their values. And so what I think is that going on is that there are people out there who ascribe to a particular worldview and climate change does not fit in their worldview. So they reject the evidence for it. And you see that sort of thing all the time in other issues. This is basic human nature. But it's important that we know that's what's going on because there are people out there who are working on communication and building trust so that we can hopefully get everybody on board with trying to solve this problem. Do you believe climate change has been communicated poorly? Historically, yeah, I do. Uh, Because climate change communication was basically left up to the scientists. And scientists are not necessarily great communicators. Some of them are. Some of them are not. I didn't get into this business because I wanted to be a communicator. I got into this business because I like doing science and I like computers and I like running climate models. And communication is a skill that I just haven't spent a lot of time on. Efforts are being made to better communicate the topic of climate change. One such method is through appealing to one's own metaphorical backyard, such as through a series of radio segments about the topic. How climate change will impact southern Indiana and the rest of the state is an effective tool to help convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to switch to more renewable energy and be more environmentally friendly. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. 
Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn all about amazing insects at Bloomington's 10th Annual Bug Fest on Saturday, October 1st from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Hilltop Gardens at Indiana University. All kinds of buggy activities are scheduled. For more information and to pre-register, go to hilltop.indiana.edu slash events hyphen programs hyphen classes slash bugfest slash index dot html. Take a tree ID hike at the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Sunday, October 2nd, beginning at 1 p.m. Meet the naturalist at the trailhead for a relaxed, easy hike through the woods to learn how to identify trees based on their leaves. The Bloomington Gardening Program is offering a program on collecting and sowing native wildflower seeds on Thursday, October 6th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the Switchyard Park Picnic Shelter. You will collect native wildflower seeds for winter sowing and enjoy a demonstration on starting native plants at home. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Go to the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, October 8th from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. for a trapper education course. Learn the ethics, best management practices, necessary skills, and some history. At the end of the course, you will have your very own Indiana trapping license. Go to https colon backslash backslash on dot in dot gov slash goosepondfwa to register. Take a full Hunter's Moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, October 8th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Pioneer Village parking lot for a multi-trail, two-mile night hike to learn the history and folklore of the Hunter's Full Moon. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Our feature was prepared and presented by Nathaniel Weinzappel. Our script today was assembled by Juliana Daly and edited by Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and edited the audio for today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. 
and this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.